That's, that's great stuff. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 31 in our time together this morning. But let's look to the Lord again in prayer before we begin. Did you ever read uh, Wrigley's Believe It or Not, that stuff? It, it gets in the newspaper often, and sometimes when we're on our way to church or something like that, my kids will pick it up and say, Dad, you're not going to believe this one, you know? And you read something, you say, no, no way. Some guy was born with, you know, four feet or something like, you know, strange, I think. And I say, I, I don't know about that. And, and, and so we laugh, and I'm sure some of that stuff's true and some of it isn't true, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know about that. But have you ever thought about that in the spiritual realm? I mean, have you ever... I mean, we, we know intellectually in our mind, everybody can become a Christian, right? But don't you wonder about certain people? A few weeks back, my wife was telling me about um, somebody that was at David Jeremiah's church out in California who was deep into the mafia. And he became a Christian. And he was giving this testimony. And, and I, I'm always wowed by these individuals. I read something in Prison Fellowship with Colson, and he talks about what's happening. And I'm going like, that's incredible. But, but, you know, when it's somebody you know that gets saved, then that really sets you back. Tim would know this individual. One of the guys that comes, you remember Bryn Wentz? Yeah. I, I'll never forget, there was, a, there was a guy I grew up with. I wasn't close to him. But he's my age. And... And he grew up in church and walked away. Didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. He was just so hard. I mean, he, he, I, I remember sometime he would go to the mall and he'd be on the top of the mall and he, he would like spit on people and then walk away. He was, just, he was just really a vindictive person. I mean, just, and whenever you talk to him, he just looked nasty, mean all the time. And never forget coming home from college one time, one of my buddies said, hey, let's go over and see Bryn. I mean, we'll probably... He'll probably yell and scream at us and throw something. Who knows? He just knows what I'll do. But all right, let, let's go. Let's give it a shot and try to make a, a give, give him a word from the Lord. So we knocked on the door and we're ready. He opens the door. And for the first time in his life, at least from my perspective, first time I've ever seen the guy, he was smiling. And I thought, this is really strange. <laughs> I'm either dead or something's going on here. And he invited us in. And before we could say anything, he said, guys, I became a Christian. I, I've become a born-again believer. And, and, and we walked out of there thinking to ourselves, I can't believe it. I would have put that in Wrigley's just like that. If you were living in the first century, you know whose name you'd put on that list? A man by the name of Saul, whose story is told in Acts chapter 9. And you know Saul becomes Paul. You know the story. I know, I know. But taste again for the first time, will you? And, and let's, let's see what, what our incredible God, as we were singing to today, can do in the lives of people around us. You know, when Acts 9, you really can't quite start in Acts 9. You almost have to go back to Acts 8. You almost have to go back to Acts 7. Stephen has stood up and proclaimed Christ's name to Jews. And what's interesting is there's a group of Jews in Jerusalem at this time who, who actually have ties outside of Jerusalem, but man, they are so, so strongly Jews that anybody that goes against the message of Judaism, they're all over them. And there's a young man by the name of Saul that's part of that group. 
And the Bible tells us Stephen stands up and he speaks in the synagogues. And whenever he speaks, they have no response for him. So what do you do when, when, when you can't confound what somebody's saying? You kill him. Right? And so they bring him to trial in Acts chapter 7. And, 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 uh, and, and Stephen goes through his entire message in a really, really powerful way. Gets to the end. For just a second, go back to Acts chapter 7. We're coming to Acts 9, but just, just by background. Um, Acts chapter 7, Peter gives this incredible speech. And, 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 and then turns around and says in verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And the Bible says in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and covered up their ears and they rushed upon him. Do you ever do that as a kid when you don't like what somebody's saying? I, 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 you, you cover your ears and you try to talk louder than them? These, kids are, these guys are acting like kids. So he's saying this one thing and they're going, they're yelling and screaming, they rush upon him and it's a, it's, it's a lynching. And they take Stephen out and they kill him. And here comes our first introduction to a man by the name of Saul. Because what we find in verse 58 is this. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we know later, when Paul, Paul two other times recounts his testimony in the book of Acts, chapter 22 and chapter 26. And he says, you know, when they laid that stuff at my feet, I was in total, I was in full approval of exactly what they were doing to Stephen. I hated him. And I wanted him dead. The Bible tells us also in chapter 26 that Paul made a determination at that point that he would wipe out the name of Jesus the Nazarene. And anybody that chose to follow him because he was going counter to Judaism and he would wipe them out. And thus we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. Look down at verse 3. Oh, and, and I'm sorry, verse 2. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Verse 3. But, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women he would put them in prison. That, that term for ravaging, it's used traditionally for animals that are totally out of control. You ever see a raging, ravaging dog? You know, where, where you get... You, 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 some people's homes, when I go walking sometimes, there's some homes that I walk on the other side, the sidewalk on the other side of the street, you know what I mean? Because you get near those dogs. Now, you're glad that they're on a chain. But you get near them, they're just they're barking away. You go, I, I don't want to get near that. That's, that's the word that's used for, for Saul here. That he is just, he's out of control, out to bite every Christian he can possibly find. He doesn't care if you're a man or a woman, it makes no difference. To him. He will drag you out of the house and put you into prison. And then what happens in the account in chapter 8? It's kind of like Luke. The camera comes off of Saul and it says, what happens to those people that have been scattered? In the chapter 8, he looks at what happens in Samaria through Philip. and tells us that story. And what you find, here is a guy who's ravaging, who's trying to destroy Christianity. And what is God doing? God is using him to get his gospel outside of Jerusalem, isn't he? And you find this massive revival going on in Samaria. And then the camera comes back in chapter 9 to Saul. Because you can't help wonder yourself, okay, 
Like Luke, you pulled off a saw, you went over here to Samaria, but like what happens to Paul? Saul? If I call him Paul, I'm sorry. He saw, he became come Paul, but it's the same guy. All right. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. The Bible says this. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, this guy can't just settle for Jerusalem or, or Judea or even Galilee. I mean, he wants to run almost 150 miles to Damascus. You know, it would have taken him a week to get there. But this man was so committed in taking the name of Jesus the Nazarene and wiping it out that he said, I want to go there because there's, there's, there's a significant number of Jews there and maybe if we can shut it down there and I can hit some other places on the way, Maybe we can shut this thing down. I mean, that's how he's thinking. The point is, the more he pushes, the more he spreads. But he doesn't realize that, does he? He's totally out of control. Humanly speaking, at this time in the church's history, this was the most concerted persecution that the church found. And it came through this man. And there was no greater enemy of the gospel than this man at this point in the church's history. Nobody was worse. If he was on everybody's Wrigley's list, who, who is it that, that God can't change? It would be this man right here. But you know, God always gets his man, doesn't he? Notice what happens. The problem is persecution, focus, commitment, all organized, all of that. The answer is always God. So notice what happens. Verse 3. Came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Later in Acts, it says that, that, that the light, because it was at noontime, the light was even brighter than the noonday sun itself. Do you ever get up about 2 o'clock in the morning, you have to go to the bathroom or something? And we have two different lights in our bathroom. One, one light... It's a, it's a fan light, and it's kind of nice. We use it for the shower, and it, it's, it's real nice. The other one's right there over the mirror. So, like, when you shave, you can see everything. And I sometimes hit the wrong light at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, you, you go on in, everything starts, oh, oh. Yeah, you know what I mean, right? We've all done that. Oh, and it's just, it's bad. That can't compare to this. I mean, it's noon. The sun is out. And as they're approaching Damascus, they've been traveling for about a week. Whatever comes, this light is so bright, the, noon itself, the noonday sun pales in comparison. The Bible tells us elsewhere that not only does Paul fall, Saul fall to his, feet, to his knees, but everybody, the guys that are with him do it. Because everybody sees the light. They don't hear what happens, what Jesus says, but they all fall to the ground. I mean, it, you can imagine, you walked out of here and all of a sudden, this incredible light just Focus down on you. You'd probably fall to your knees too. Right? That's exactly what he does. Listen to what happens next. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if we could add what Paul tells us later in chapter 
26, uh, it, the, he, Jesus goes on to say, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he's using, he's using a picture of, of oxen that, that, you know, oh, sometimes an oxen, as you're plowing, they want to go one way, and you take that thing and you hit them, you know, get, put them right back in line. And, and what, what Jesus is saying is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what, Saul? You can't stop what I'm doing. I'm going a certain direction, and you may think, well, I want to divert this way. I, I'll just hit you with the bricks and put you right back on line, pal. Because, Saul, this is my world. It's not yours. This is my gospel. And you can't stop it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and he said, he doesn't quite know yet. I mean, I'm sure he's got inklings at this point. He said, who art thou, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus and in the later account, it says, it says this, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. I mean, his whole life was saying, I will snuff out the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. And all of the, this, this sect called the Nazarenes, these followers of him, I'll wipe it out. And he falls down and he's overwhelmed and he says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the Nazarene. How would you feel? I, when, I, when I get to heaven, these are one of my, one of my questions for Saul. Saul, you've got to tell me, like, how are you feeling at that point? Maybe I'm dead. <laughs> I don't have a chance at this particular point. Jesus goes on to say, but rise, enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. The men were traveling with him, stood speechless, of course. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. I mean, they're saying something's up here. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Here was this powerful, ravaging man with all this force, moving into Damascus to control and do everything he wanted to do. And when God's finished with him, he is helplessly led in Damascus as a blind man. It's God. They're like, how else do you explain that? And you know what happens. Ananias is going to meet with him. And if you go down in your Bibles to verse 17, and Ananias entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight, he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And it's only just begun with this man, hasn't it? The Bible's going to go on to tell us here, this man who is saved is absolutely transformed and empowered by God. Here's what's amazing about Acts 9. When you start at the beginning of Acts 9, you have information about the greatest enemy of the gospel. When you get to the end, you're learning about the greatest asset for the gospel. The same guy. Who can do that? But God. Um... 
Look, look, look what happens here in verse, uh, verse 20. I, I, I love this. Everybody's world is turned upside down by this guy. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, this name of Jesus the Nazarene? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? In other words, they're saying to themselves, I thought this guy was on our side. I thought he was working our side of the street. I, I thought, like, their whole world's turned upside down. He's so effective, notice what happens. Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. That, that's what you do. I mean, that's what, that's what he did with Stephen. If you can't argue the case, you kill him. It makes a lot of sense. It's not right, but it makes a lot of sense. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were, they were watching the gates night and day so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now, as you reconfigure this with what we know from Galatians and 2 Corinthians 11, what you find is Paul was in this area of Damascus for anywhere between a year and a half, two years, up to three years. It's, it's somewhat debated exactly how long, but he's up there. And he's not only ministering to the Jews, but we learn in 2 Corinthians that he's also ministering more broadly to Gentiles at this particular time. He's ministering all over the place. And when you come to this passage, we find out that the Jews want him out of Damascus. We find in 2 Corinthians that the Gentile leaders want him out of Damascus. Nobody wants this guy around because he's confounding everybody and God's using him to bring all kinds of people to faith in Christ. So everybody's world is turned upside down by this guy. And so the only way to get him out of the city is to drop him in the basket so no one can know. He goes to Jerusalem, and notice what happens there. Um, let me have you pop down to verse 28. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. They were the ones that he was with when he was in Jerusalem. But now they're attempting to put him to death. And when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Folks, you know, we talk in literature about tragedies and comedies. This is a comedy, isn't it? Because when you look at the beginning, you're scratching your head saying, I don't know if there's any hope for the church. I think Paul's going to like wipe it all out. You get to the end and you say, that guy is furthering the gospel. So much so that all the enemies want to kill him. And God uses the entire process to bring peace. Now, now who can do that, folks? That's the work of God. There were a couple verses that I failed to read today. I'm going to go back and revisit them with you very quickly. Because you read that text and you say to yourself, look at the transforming 
power and grace of the risen Lord. Something that only He could do. But you know what happens? We are often like Ananias. Notice, notice for just a second. Let's go back to verse 10 here of chapter 9. Paul is in Damascus and he's waiting on Ananias to come. And notice what the text says. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Tar- from Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. A very simple question, a very simple thing. Jesus comes to Ananias in a vision. He says, Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to find Saul. Now, what would you expect Ananias to say in response to that? I mean, you'd kind of think that he would say, okay, Lord, right? But notice what he says. Look down, if you would, at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. Can, can you imagine what that was like? Ananias has this vision, and Jesus says, go and see Saul. And Ananias says, oh Lord, excuse me a second, um, I, perhaps you didn't know the inside track on this guy. I mean, I mean, I, did, did you know something about him? Because maybe, let me just inform you, Lord. <laughs> um, in Jerusalem, bad guy. And, and Lord, did you know why he was coming to Damascus? I mean, it's everybody, everybody else knows. He's out here to, 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 to wipe us out, Lord. It, it's humorous, isn't it? I mean, I, I read that thing with Ananias and I say to myself, like, what's wrong with him? This is God. And, and that's exactly what happens. Jesus rebukes him, doesn't he? He says, you go, because he is my vessel, and he will impact the world for me. He will learn what suffering is all about, and I will use him in ways you can't possibly imagine. Ananias, shh, go. So I look at him, and I say to myself, what's wrong with that guy? And then I look at Doug Finkbeiner, and I wonder what's wrong with this guy. Because I've got my Wrigley's list of the individuals. I mean, I, I can right now in my mind, I could give you three or four people down at University of Penn that I say to myself, there ain't no way, excuse the English there, there's no way they're going to come to faith in Christ. There, there's no reason to even talk to them. Hmm. Doug, Finkbeiner, Ananias. I do it. Do you do it? We put people on our list. Dear Ananias, I can't be too hard on him because when I read him, I see myself. Do you know what happened? After Paul has ministered for two to three years in Damascus, and he goes down to Jerusalem. I mean, he's been at it for several years, had it having had an impact. Notice how the believers in Jerusalem respond. Look, look at verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, He was trying to associate with the disciples. And they were afraid of him. Not believing that he was a disciple. 
So here's Saul, comes into Jerusalem, and some of the disciples are looking, and, and in all fairness, you wonder how many of their friends and family have been killed because of him. And, and, and honestly, really, in all fairness. And for whatever reason, they're looking at him, they're saying, look, he's certainly doing undercover work. Now, I know he's been doing it for three years, two or three years. But, but something's going on there, and I don't think we better get too close to this guy. And who takes a risk with him? The guy that always takes a risk. It's always Barnabas. Barnabas pulls up beside him and says, I'll vouch for this guy. He's, he's, he's good. Later, when there's a problem with John Mark, who vouches for John Mark? It's Barnabas. I mean, that, that's Barnabas. That's just who he is. He's a great guy. And once again, I read about these disciples who had good reason to believe that Paul was working undercover. Honestly. And who knows how many loved ones had died because of him. I, I, we don't know. So, so I don't want to be too hard on him. But both the disciples and both um, Ananias had forgotten how great their God was. And we do the same thing. See, when I read Acts 9, it tells me that God is going to further his gospel and nobody's going to get in the way. You'll either get in line, become a forgiven follower of his, right? And that's what happens to Saul. He comes to know forgiveness and, and following on the way. It's wonderful. Or God will push you out of the way because it's his world. And, and we forget God can do that. Remember in chapter 12, Herod Agrippa is trying to kill Peter and God delivers him and, 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 and Agrippa's got such a huge opinion of himself and God in his sovereignty at one point finally says, that's it, I've had it. You're dying, Herod. And by the end of chapter 12, he's gone. Because you can't stop God. It's him. It's his word. It's his way. He will do what he's going to do. And he says, you know what? He says to me, Doug, don't be like an Ananias. Don't be like those disciples at Jerusalem that forget that God is God. Instead, be used of him. Be part of the process. And you'll look back and you'll see God work through you in the lives of those that are lost, new believers who you could never believe would really change. God will use you in ways you can't possibly imagine. And you'll look back and you'll say, it's God. I don't know where you are. I don't know who's on your list. I don't know when I say hard case who you think of. But whoever they are, God in his sovereignty and his time always gets his man. Let's believe it. Let's believe it so strongly that when God says go, we go. When God says speak, we speak. When God says testify, we testify. And don't be surprised how God might use you. There's a lot of Bryn Wences out there. And God calls us merely to witness and let him do the rest because it's his story that he's using to impact the world. Let's pray.